Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. So we're going to kick off our second night this winter. I'm Amber Kenyon. For those of you who don't know, with Gateway Research Organization, we're a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta, Canada, that does a number of things. We do a lot of small plot crop research. We run a heifer pasture project in which we demonstrate five different cell designs and three different management types all on one quarter of land. And then the other thing that we do is bring information and research to agricultural producers. Part of that is events like tonight, in-person events, our podcast, Sustainable Agriculture, which is also recordings of these nights um, on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, our YouTube channel, Gateway Research Organization, and then, of course, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please follow us on whatever your favorite channel is. Our YouTube channel has a lot of videos. Uh, in fact, I just put out one today about our Heifer Pasture Project, so that's one you'll want to catch up on. So we are very excited to be starting up these network nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for a third season now. I can't believe it's our third season already. Yeah, we started these up during COVID and it's been absolutely incredible. And so we figured we better come back with a third season just because we really like you guys. So tonight we're incredibly excited to have Alejandro Carrillo with us. Steve and I had the opportunity to meet him at the Grassland Summit in Colorado this, I think that was the summer. I don't know. Time goes by so fast. Um, but the Grassland Summit, and it was a great time. It was great to get to sit down and chat with him. And we were very excited to bring his story to you guys. So the topic of tonight is grazing in extreme environments. But as many of you know who are regulars here, don't be afraid to go off on a tangent because we always look forward Forward to that too. We want to we want to address any topics you guys have on your mind. So, Steve, do you want to introduce yourself and your thoughts on tonight's topic? Thanks, Amber. Yes, uh, Steve Kenyon with Greener Pastures Ranching. Uh, we are a custom grazing operation near Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, happy to be here. and And big welcome to Alejandro. Um, I was very excited when I got to meet him and shake his hand this spring, in March, I believe, in uh, Colorado. So. His story is very unique and there's, uh, I've heard lots of different, uh, watched some videos and lots of different stories about his ranch in the Chihuahuan Desert. And I'm very excited to be, uh, you know, firsthand listening to some more of uh, the information he has about uh, his operation. Now, kind of the topic goes hand in hand with what I'm doing right now as well. Um, we started last winter, we built a Canadian grazing mentorship program. And we're trying to spread the, you know, advanced grazing system idea, mentality, whatever version of it you call it, right? We, we tried to call it an advanced grazing system because there's so many different schools of thought on grazing. So we're trying to do a generic, right? But we're trying to spread that across Canada more. And what I've been finding when I go across Canada and all the different provinces and different areas is that everybody has different extremes, right? We've got very, very wet areas. We've got very, very dry, very hot, very cold. The advantage of the grazing concepts and the idea behind this is that we adapt them to the environment, right? Alejandro and I might be in totally different environments, but we still use the same grazing concepts generally. And, you know, we're, we're managing for a graze period, we're managing for rest period, we're, you know, trying to stimulate that animal impact, and we're trying to increase our stock density as much as we can, depending on the situation. And we're building soil armor, we're, we're doing all these same things. 
but we just adapt them to the environment. And that's what I found going across Canada here. And I was actually working on a presentation today about grazing in, in different extreme environments. So uh, perfect timing for this topic. Uh, just very excited to have Alejandro here. I'm, uh, he, he's kind of a, a hero of mine, and I'm happy to have him on board here today. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Alejandro, to give a little bit of an introduction of yourself, where you're from, and basically what your operation is about. And then we'll kind of turn it over into questions and answers. And just to everybody else, I'm expecting a lot of questions tonight. So if you want to get your questions answered in time, you better get them in the chat quick because uh, we might fill up tonight, I'm sure. So go ahead, Alejandro. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Amber, for the invitation. It's always an honor to be able to share a little bit of what we have done here in the Chihuahua Desert. Our ranch is located in um, Chihuahua, Mexico, not too far from the border. The straight line is about 100 miles from the Rio Grande. And, you know, I joined the operation about 15 years ago, and I knew what it, it, it meant to be a conventional rancher. Three bad years, one good year, two bad years, and, you know, a never-ending drought. So I started looking for some other opportunities. I was really very blessed and lucky to have this old-timer of holistic management practitioners in Chihuahua instead of Chihuahua, Mexico. And they were my mentors. And, you know, when you have a mentor, you really speed up the process. Because they already make a lot of, still, you know, we made a lot of mistakes trying to improve. Or, or our philosophy is that we always trying to improve on our management. We always put everything on the spotlight, you know, and see whether that works, that doesn't work, and then we keep going. Uh, we have uh, 500 cows, 300 sheep, uh, a few goats for our own consumption, and all kind of uh, pets and donkeys as well. You know, we actually added donkeys um, a couple of years ago for the reason not actually to protect the herd, but also because we did not want to force the cows to eat the whole thing in a more or less selective grazing, but more into uh, uh, trying to eat, for example, the stems and a lot of actually woody plants and uh, desert plants that the cows don't, don't eat. So we, in that particular case, we prefer to have manure uh, from an animal than actually having the plant just stay there. So it's, it's, it's been a good combination. And that came from a study from Princeton when they added donkeys, they actually have uh, experienced an increase in gain, uh, gain uh, in uh, weight, in gain weight. And also in Africa, they experienced the same when they added zebras. So yeah, we, we are strong believers on diversity of plants, but also on animals. I love I love your comment about adding donkeys to your your ranch, Alejandro. I've got a couple of donkeys here, and usually they're just kind of the the butt end of the jokes. They originally were pets, and then they were guardian animals for a bit, and then they're pets again. And I've got one donkey that's over forty years old, and and he still looks oh, yeah. good, so he's he's doing pretty good. Um, so yeah, I, I love donkeys. I I'll come work for you just because you have donkeys. Sounds great. Yeah, we, we have uh, 500 cows and um, we're, we're targeting for 50 donkeys. We bought six, now we have like 20 after or 18 after a couple of years. So I think they're pretty happy where they are. So <laughs> one of the things with adding in a different species, Alejandro, is the, the, the dynamics that change within the herd. 
right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You throw donkeys or what we normally think of up here as horses in there, it, mm-hmm. it actually adds animal <laughs> impact because the donkeys are a little bit, you know, they've got a little bit of attitude and they'll go running through the middle of the cows because they can, they're bosses. So the donkeys will run through the herd and kind of scatter them, right? That'll increase the animal impact on the ground. So having multi-species out there is a good thing for animal impact, right? Is that, is that why you're doing it or part of the reason? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're promoting these regen principles, uh, one of them actually is diversity. Then why are we trying to do everything with just one kind of animal, like the cows? I mean, we're trying to mimic nature and mimic nature. Nature has so many tools at its disposition, you know, like so many species that they can graze so great. So the first thing we did was actually when I joined the ranch was to put many herds that were spread across the ranch uh, together to form a big herd. Because, you know, even if you have the same densities, having a bigger herd will always have a better impact than a smaller herd. And also the work that you take and the focus, I mean, you don't want to express that work and, and the focus on having multiple herds. So always a recommendation is having as few herds as possible, or as it just one herd of animals above all ages, Plus the horses, the, the set of horses and the mares have always been on the herd. It doesn't really make sense to put, I mean, the keeping the body condition of our horses is a bit more challenging than the cows, uh, but they're still on the herd. You know, they're still on the herd, horses, and then the sheep go around the herd in a more selective setting. And then we added the donkeys. The donkeys really behave really well for us because I think we throw a whole family of donkeys. I think it doesn't make sense to me to throw one or two donkeys because we need to build communities. So remember, when we throw the donkeys, I mean, in our ranch, we have flatland and we have mountain range, and the donkey just ran to the mountain range, and we lost it for a couple of months, and we have a lot of mountain lions, but, you know, they're they're pretty good. They're pretty good at uh, defending themselves. So we got them back like a couple of months after and they finally they bonded, take them much long to bind to bind it, bond it to the herd. And now they are just one herd. I mean, they're just one, or I don't have to call it flerk or herd, whatever. But it's exciting. It's exciting seeing the donkeys grazing a lot of low quality forage that the cows that you need to supplement the cows to eat that kind of forage. Well, there's also other things like we call it ocotillo or cactus that donkeys gonna try that and they're gonna eat that so i like that multi-species thing i really love that yeah it's amazing how some cowboys don't i was at a ranch in in uh, nevada one time it was a million acres in size a wow. really big ranch it was down there we drove took all day to drive through it they were i was doing a, a day consulting down there whatever and and a day of presentations and we drove through and i came back i mean to me it was in the middle of the desert there wasn't much mm-hmm, out there. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I suggested to the whole group of, of people, all the employees and the managers and everything together. I said, you could add a thousand goats to this ranch mm-hmm. and not even see a drop in production for the cattle. There's such a different uh, diversity of food out there that the goats would eat that mm-hmm. the cows don't eat. And it was mm-hmm. funny because about four or five of the cowboys instantly said that they would quit. There's no way they're dealing with goats. They just want cows. <laughs> so I think that's a, me- a mental thing too sometimes that we have this mental block about, no, we're just cowboys. 
Whereas if we could bring in other species in, mm. uh, I think that's a fantastic opportunity to do other stimulation. And, and one of our tools, right, is change. We can change our species. We can change our rotation. We can change, you know, uh, the timing when we graze. We can change our intensity. There's all sorts of changes that we can do in our, in our system. So. Awesome. Well, we have questions rolling in. So first up, we have Larry Holcomb. I've got 20 questions. I should have typed them all in. But the uh, main thing, Alejandro, I, I know your story because I've seen every video that you've ever been in, just because it's intriguing to me. A lot of people don't know, I think that you started with basically desert. Now you have grass. And I, maybe you can explain that a little bit. But did you kickstart it by bell grazing? Steve got me on bell grazing years ago. And and everybody said you can't do it in Georgia because we have too much moisture. But I put out 30 days at a time, and it's amazing what it's done to my farm. But did you kickstart the biology by putting hay out? Uh, yeah, thanks for your question. No, we did not. We did not because most people at that time were not really trying bale grazing. What we did was trying to fit the size of the paddocks uh, with the available forage. So mm -hmm. we, we have a bare ground spot then uh, we we included another spot with some grass. And it was quite challenging because at times, you know, we have to move the cows for... See, the point there is that that's when the sign stops and the art of grazing stars. Because it's actually a lot of your observation skills. I do remember that one of the mistakes we made at the beginning was, oh, we want to build soil. We want to build soil. But hold on. The cows are the ones bringing the money. So it's always a fine line between building soils and, you know, keeping your cows in good body condition. I, I mean, pretty much keeping your cows happy to, to, to end this, uh, you know. So for us, it's always most more important the cows. And the cows would tell us if they're happy with the move, if they're not happy. I mean, if they are full. I mean, the idea is for us to go every morning and before we open the gate, we're moving now twice a day. But let's say that we just changed that like uh, a month ago. And that's, that was my people. So the thing is that when we go and open the gate, we don't just go and open the gate. We go and then take a look at the whole herd. Because at that particular point, we are wearing our predator hat. Saying we're always cool in the bottom. We don't, we don't let the herd just to start uh fall into the cracks so we're, we're looking for body condition we're looking for hair coat we're looking for right, anything that could be wrong with that cow and then we wrote down the numbers and and we do that like uh, once or twice a month so we don't let really the, the hair to start you know and then we take those animals and put it in a nice well-rested pasture so at that point uh we are we are acting as a predators but then once we finish with the, that round of looking at the cattle, then the cows have to learn when it's time to move. They shouldn't really be rushing you. And obviously the cows are full because they will be rushing you if the cows are not full. Because you can have all the grass in the world, but if you're not moving on the right time, they're always going to be hungry. And that was an issue that we have years ago where the cows were, I mean, we never stopped the movement of the cows, even if they are calving. We still move the cows when they're calving. Uh, we open up a little bit so they don't lose body condition. We don't get that much density. But 
The point at that time is that we were forcing too much into soil building by sacrificing the cows. Now the cows now take priority. So when you go in the morning, a good indicator is some of the cows are laying down, ruminating. And that's a good sign. You know, and they are calm. I mean, they are just, you just walk by on horse, on foot. Because you see different things on, on the horse and foot. Then once it's time to move, then they, they're going to follow the shepherd. So you change your hats and now you're the shepherd. You're not the predator again. And then they follow you, whatever you, you take them, they follow you. So it's, it's really nice to have that closeness and that interaction. And some people, you know, I have a friend of mine who says, so his father, he sits with the cows and his friend says, what are you doing? And he said, I'm making money. So we really need to spend more time with our cows because we need to do not only good grazing management, but also good selection, calling selection and so on. Even my small herd, the cows will tell you when they're ready to move. That's amazing. Uh, did you have to sow seed to get to desert that didn't have so uh, vegetation to grow or did the cattle do it from ruminating? You mean like seeding or? How did you get, you have grass now where you didn't have grass oh, yes, before yes, yes. the desert. How did you, yeah. how did that happen? Yeah, uh, it was very incredible thing because uh, actually the, 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 the person who invited me to this was my veterinarian, which is kind of, you know, like difficult to find a veterinarian that really is a strong believer on this, but mm. there are some there. So he saw like a, seven feet tall grass, sprang, green strangle top. I said, oh, wow, I never believed you could have that. But that was in a far place where cattle's, cattle, cattle could, could, could not really reach it. Now it's spreading all over the ranch. Mm -hmm. So my big hairy goal still is not be able to see my cows. Not because my cows are like one meter tall, because the grasses are seven feet tall. So that's still my goal, and it's spreading like crazy, the, the grass. So the seed was there. The seed was there, but we actually had to create the right conditions for the seed to germinate. It doesn't really matter much if I take native seeds, if the conditions are not there. I mean, we have to respect the natural succession of going from bare ground to weeds, to so, animals, and then to So the seed was on the bare ground. Seed was already on the bare ground. So when the biology increased, they grew. Is that correct? Well, it is not only the biology, but it's also how you increase your capacity to infiltrate more water. Mm -hmm. And how you increase that is obviously through the, all the tools that the cow provide. And we say the tools of the cow, we're talking about eight tools. Obviously, I'm, I'm concerned for tools, the hoops, right? Because they break the hard pan and also the saliva. I mean, you, you can see that when the cow eat a plant uh, or cut the plant, it's much faster. It grows much faster than when you cut it with scissors, something like that. Uh, the urine, the manure, and also even the breathing of the cow is putting CO2 into the plants. So it's that incredible machine that we have, all that biology, that is going to start waking up this whole the microbiology because at the end of the day, you're going to increase your infiltration capacity by feeding the mycorrhizal fungi, which is going to create the aggregates, the space in the soil, the, 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 the room, the air in the soil. That, I mean, if we talk about the normal water cycle, first of all, 
the water needs to be infiltrated. I mean, that's what Alan Sewery called effective rainfall. See, the average in Chihuahua, even with the uh, nine inches that we that we have, the average in the state of Chihuahua where we ranch is about 40% effective rainfall. So if let's say the minero gets nine inches, actually he's only getting like four. Think about that. We're gonna be we are not going to be able never to get out of the drought. So I think one of the main goals for us as ranchers is how, I mean, to fix the water cycle. Because I think you asked me this question previously, how, how are you claiming, how am I claiming that I'm getting more rain? Well, I'm getting a little bit more extra rain. This year was pretty drastic because we had this tropical storm and it went down, but you know, not, not everybody got like eight inches that we got like in 10 days. We got pretty much a lot of rain all the rain of the year in just like a 10 days and most people got four so we know that all the ranches doing this they got this extra rain and it's because we have more green biomass longer during the year and that actually does the magic of of the photosynthesis of putting air in the soil increasing the 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 effort increasing the infiltration rate and then doing the evapotranspiration that completes the water cycle. It's not not how much rain you get, it's how much you get to keep. Is that correct? Exactly. Like, you know, this extension is from the early 1900s that says that don't pray for rain if you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm going to get off. I know you got other questions because I could go on. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll just add to that a little bit. Alejandro, you hit it right on the head there when um, it's repairing the water cycle, right? The the question he originally asked was about, did you bale graze to, to heal the land? Um, bale grazing is a cheat, right? It's a very fast way to fix a water cycle. It adds organic matter. I used to think it was the fertility that added that was the big benefit, but I learned, you know, it didn't take me very long to learn. No, it was the repairing of the water cycle because if you add fertility, it gets used up. But if you can fix the water cycle, then you get the biology and you get the whole system working, then it perpetuates its own fertility, right? It just goes on and on and on. Whereas if you just add fertility, uh, it gets used up and it's gone. So it, the problem with bale grazing is it's sl slow because you can only cover a small amount of land, right? If you've got to cover 3000 acres of the Chihuahuan desert, I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure how much you have there, but it's going to take a long time to cover that ground. So we have to try and build the whole system to increase the water holding capacity, increase the biology, you know, get more carbon in the land to hold it. Uh, it's a whole system. And that cow is that, that uh, keystone species that kind of allows it all to work together. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I've loved Loved your answer. Just wanted to add to it about the bale grazing a little bit. So, okay. Uh, Amber, go ahead. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I love this. We're getting right into it. Like just right off the hop. This is fantastic. Um, Etienne, you are up next. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. I am wondering what lessons have you learned from your years of growing grass in the desert that could help us make better decisions um, through our hotter and drier summers or uh, when there's a full on drought? Yeah. Thanks for your question. One of the hardest lessons that I learned, or the biggest mistakes, is that you know you have your ranch and then you have uh, the worst areas and the best areas, and we tend to start 
working on the worst areas when we really should be starting on the best areas. Because for us, your priority is first to save the ranchers. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, well, yeah, we can save the world, but if we don't save the ranchers, then we're done. So we want the ranchers to get results on the next uh, on the next uh, season, on the next growing season. So when we go to a ranch, we try to look at those long hungry fruit, which means those areas that um, still you have good stands of grasses, and then you start prioritizing your ranch based on the best areas, the closer to you, high visibility areas, easy to access. They got a little bit more moisture. And then you, you're going to put more there. I mean, when I say more investment there, I mean, there. And then you're going to leave for the very end, the worst areas. I mean, we as humans, it doesn't make sense. But if you see it as an investment as, and as a result, how long it's going to take you, you should always start with small products. I mean, we don't, I, I do remember that the the old school or well the the the, the beginning of um, this grazing was well just yes, split the pasture in two and then in four and that really comes with a big problem and the problem is that you put a lot of money or capital investment there but the results are very marginal because you don't have enough density to make a difference so recommendation is put like your 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 ranch or property with different colors like the dark green is going to be the best areas and then it goes all the way through yellow and then red areas is the ones that are going to be more expensive the ones that are more degraded and then start on that order and that way we can actually save a lot of ranchers and get results faster i think that's going to be for me the most important things that we learn through time uh, the other thing is that uh, there's no formula formulas there. I mean, your your grazing has to be really very flexible and adaptive. And I can give you a couple of examples this year. In June, we have uh, a couple of inches. So we start celebrating, dancing for the rains. And oh my God, this is going to be a great year. And we start planning for um, doing small paddocks on areas that we have a lot of grass. And oh, oh, it stopped raining. And then everything dried up again. So when we reach those paddocks, then we have to open up the paddocks. Because remember, we don't supplement, so the, the cows always need some dry and green to keep a balanced diet. So if there's very little green, then we open up the, the and we lower the densities. And then we got the other extreme where we had this tropical storm in August. It poured eight inches in ten days. So we said, well, you know, now we need to go and head to the mountain range because it's a mess down there. So it's we never kind of follow a pattern. We always, um, obviously, every day that you do this kind of management, it, things get easier. But still, we're very uh, flexible into what nature throws at us, and then we adapt to that. I'm going to actually add to your add to that question. Um, when I was in Denver, Colorado, this year, this is for you to attend. Um, just to add to your question, um, you told me that your uh, I, if I recall correctly, your plan for this grazing season, which I'm assuming is 365 days, uh, maybe mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little bit out there, uh, you were planning on grazing 800 paddocks. Yes. Okay, so so can you explain that a little bit and, and tell, um, tell us your, 
uh, context in that. I mean, you're quite different from us. Your grazing season is 365 days. Our grazing season is, you know, maybe uh, 110, 120 days, uh, actual growing season. So can mm-hmm. you explain that a little bit? Well, to give you a little bit of context, because we all have challenges. When we start grazing, uh, well, when we started this plant grazing management at the ranch, we only have green for three months. Think about it. We only have green, green grass. Perennial grasses were green just for three months. So everybody believed that the kind of land that we have could be grazed only for three months. So once you start, once you start applying this plant grazing management, then you start infiltrating more water, and then your green season start extending. And that's why we are able to graze the whole year round because now we have a lot of green, obviously, on the rainy season and some green on the dry season. And if we have in front of us, I mean, we're making like these operational decisions every day. If we have a lot of green in front of us, then we make the paddocks very small because, you know, that will be sufficient to feed the cow uh, for in a small pasture, small paddock. But if we're in winter and we don't have we have much less green, a lot of dry. Then we open up the paddocks. We make the paddocks larger to meet those uh, nutritional requirements. When I told you about the 800 paddocks, that's based on the belief that we will have good rains. Now we had good rains at the beginning. Then see, because we have like 350 paddocks are fixed. They are like a one wire, uh, a high tensile wire, and they're fixed. They are about between 20, and 40, uh, no, between um, <laughs> metric and English, right? <laughs> and now we have both here. So, okay, so we have, let's say, uh, between 40 and 60 acre paddocks across the ranch. Fixed, it's, this, these are all fixed. You cannot change them. What you can do is just, you can, because they're like long paddocks, you can actually cross fence with polywire. So really depending on what is out there that nature is throwing at you, then we can use the whole paddock for one day because we always plan for daily moves. We don't want to go longer than daily moves because that kind of keeps a good performance of the cows. But if it rains a lot and then we have a lot of thick grasses there, then we can split that paddock into four or five pieces and then move twice a day. So that goes from 300 paddocks to 800 paddocks but or 1,000 paddocks, but that really depends on, on what the climate is actually bringing to you. So how many times would you graze a paddock in a year? Would it be only one time or would you do two times? Well, that's, I love that question. And, you know, I, I came back from uh, Colombia and Venezuela like uh, two weeks ago. First of all, it was really interesting because, you know, they have uh, kind of subtropical dry tropics and they were strongly believers that they have to seed some grasses there. I mean, we ne- had never seeded any grass. All the grasses are, we just changed the conditions of the ranch and they just grown. But we were very fortunate to meet a couple of ranchers there that they never throw an introduced grass and they are actually bringing the native grasses there. It's pretty amazing. And, and there's this theory or this belief, you know, that, well, you need to graze your, your grasses at the optimal point. And what is the optimal point? Well, how do you avoid overgrazing a grass? Well, you know, you need to, that grass needs to get into the boot stage. I mean, when it's forming the seed and then you graze that grass, you are not overgrazing that grass. I mean, because it's fully, I mean, the, the root system is fully developed. 
But then the theory was that you have to graze all the grass at the optimal point. Well, there, down there, we realized that people making longer rest periods, like instead of 20 days, 60 days, um, because it's pretty short rest periods there because of the rain, they were growing more diversity. So they were growing more legumes. And so even though they were not really reaching the optimal point, they were gaining more pounds per day because they were growing all their weeds. They were growing uh, uh, some forbs. They were growing some legumes. So for us, it's just a one-year rest period. I mean, it could be longer than that. But the reason for long rest periods is to promote diversity of plants. Excellent. Uh, the only little part I'd like for you to touch on to finish that, because that was a pretty good answer with the, the question Steve kind of added to it. When it comes to a drought, what's the process you make your decisions with mm-hmm. to tackle mm-hmm. that drought? I think somebody else also asked the drought question, so maybe it'll yeah. kind of answer two in one. But So what we have done in order not to buy ourselves out of a drought because you know everything gets expensive but your cows in a drought so what we do is at the at the end of the growing season that for us is uh let's say fall we get an inventory of the grass uh at the ranch and then we make a decision whether we have the right the right number of animals for the grass that we have but to go from, let's say, October, which is at the end of the growing season, all the way through August, not all the way through July, because remember that I got most of my rains in the monsoon. I mean, I got July, August, September, and I'm done. So in October, could be a little bit of rain. I'm still some growing. And at that month, in October, we make, uh, we, we make sure that we have enough grass and even a little bit more uh, inventory of animals that we have. If we don't, then we're going to start selling only the year, you know, uh, which is in the fall when the cows are really in very good condition and when the market is not there still um, in urgency. But we do all our decisions based on, on this stockpile of grass that we have. Um, if we have more grass than we can, like today, then we're going to be bringing cattle from someone else and get some extra money because at the end of the day, Cows are a way to sell your grass. Steve, did you have anything to add there? No, I'm good. Uh, we can. I kind of hijacked the Chen's question there, so we can move on to the next question. I Thank did you. want to just because you broached upon it, Alejandro. Um, what stage of grasses do you graze at? Is the grass at when you graze it? You mean what? What? What, what type of grasses? You mean what stage? So is it after it's oh, gone no. to seed or? We're getting the rains like in um, three months because, you know, things have changed drastically. When I was a kid, we got good snow there. I mean, we got a couple of years ago, like not this winter, the previous winter, two winters ago, we got like a three snow events at the ranch. But we used to snow every year and we, we used to have good springs. Now, not in, that's not the case any longer. So we just rely on those three months in the monsoon. So because all the rain goes in three months, then and our laundries, you know, we have laundry periods. We always grazing grass that pretty much already seeded. It's already seeded or actually dropped seed. But because of the diversity we have, like probably you're dominated by more cool season grasses. I'm not sure you have warm season grasses. Yeah. We, we didn't even know we have cool season grasses. And it was thanks to the 
intensive deep grazing and also combined with a lot of spirits, that now we'll start seeing cool season grasses. I believe we will never have a high percentage of cool season grasses, but then that's kind of the diversity that we want. That's fascinating. Okay, thank you. Um, Larry Wagner, you're up next. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Hi, I have a question for you regarding the wildlife on your place. As you get more and more surplus grass, are you seeing an increase in wildlife and you see more species coming in from farther? Because your place is basically a green island in the brown. Yes, sir. Uh, we Thanks for your question, Larry. Uh, we work very close with some conservations, uh, uh, nature conservation organizations, mostly with the birds. Actually, you know, a lot of these migratory birds come from Southern Canada, Northern US, and they they uh, overwinter in the Chihuahuan Desert. But you know, we have to have grass, grasses for them to protect. So yeah, a lot of animals are just coming to my ranch, including mule deer and also predators and uh, mountain lions and, and, and a lot of hawks and we have golden eagles. We have seen an incredible increase on, on all wildlife. It's just amazing. I mean, we love wildlife, you know, and uh, obviously we don't have grizzly bears, but it's been amazing. And actually the organizations we work with, I'm on the board of those organizations. Think about it. Like at times I'm the troublemaker rancher uh, on those boards because we're providing results. We're providing consistent results. They go every year to do the transits and they get great results. So I think we reach a point where we can stop fighting between ranchers and conservationists. I think what is good for the cow is good for the wildlife. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, I've seen on my place, I've been doing the same amount of time as you, we've seen a very much diverse upland birds move in. And it's amazing these little birds are flying all the way between your place and my place. And yes. they're only weighing ounces know how big they are, how far they travel to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, do, it's, it's, yeah. it's exciting. It's exciting, definitely. I, I love that. I love, uh, they already they already arrived at my, at my place. I was uh, a couple of days ago at my place and Oh my God, you can even, I mean, there's so many indicators of the health of your ecosystem. So when I go and I take the, the road to get to my ranch, you can count, you can count just, just the birds and you'll see what is the health of your, of your place. I mean, it's just as simple as that. We don't really need that much complexity to know how healthy is your, your, your landscape. But you see an increase every year yet or is it starting to plateau a bit? No, still increasing. Still, it's still increasing because you know, the point is that, for example, we are running five hundred cows right now, but now we have the grass for a thousand cows. And remember, put this in context. Crazy there because we have like a five or six years of a drought. We were not really hit that hard, so we kept the five hundred cows. But my neighbors under the same acreage, they went to a hundred. The timer just went. And now, uh, if we, as you increase your 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 stock, your livestock, then you will have much more impact and much better results and more wildlife. And but it's exciting. The journey is exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you very much. Uh, every year, I since I've uh, heard about Alejandro, I tell all my birds in the fall to make sure they go find his ranch. <laughs> so I'm sending more down there all the time. That's great. <laughs> 
<laughs> Send yeah. a message with it. Yeah, yeah. The other part to that, Larry, too, is also to keep an eye out on your insect populations, mm-hmm. right? Are your insects increasing too? Because that's a that's a huge part of my ranch. I mean, we've got cowbirds and we've got like all sorts of birds as well, but um, dragonflies, spiders, even bats, right? I'm, I'm constantly trying to keep tabs on what's increasing on my property. So um, yeah, insects are my favorite. Dragonflies, I, I just love dragonflies. They're my greatest predator ever. Steve, I think you touch a very, very important point because I can tell my fellow ranchers that, I mean, one of the first things we, we go and take a look at the, on the ranches is the cow pies. We want to see nice shade cow pies during summer, you know, but not only, we, we, we don't only want to see the cow pie, we want to see some activity on the cow pie. And one of our best allies is the dam beetles. But, it, but the first thing we need, we, we need to do to have dam beetles, you know, is to stop killing the dam beetles. So dam beetles, termites, um, we're not yet to airworms, but those are really uh, incredible creatures that are going to speed up the regeneration process. Yeah, we had uh, Dr. Kevin Float on here uh, last year or last winter sometime, and he's a he's my dung beetle nerd. If I find a dung beetle and I need a name for it, I just send a picture to him and he tells me. But right. th- uh, if I recall correctly, there was something like uh, the dung pad alone is home for over 400 species of critters, right? Like right there, the diversity complexity, you know, exponentially rises just because you have a dung pad that shows up, right? So that's really impressive at, at how that herbivore is that keystone species that just triggers and, and causes that diversity to skyrocket. So I, I just love that. I freak our 13 year old daughter out because I absolutely love spiders. <laughs> so I'll be like, look, there's nine cat face or weavers on front of our house. <laughs> And she's scared to death of spiders. So I love <laughs> Phil's comment here that he's fondled way too many spiders this year. I love that, Phil. And next up, we have David Stinnett. David, are you ready to go? Yes, ma'am. Perfect. Alejandro, when, when you started out, were you ha- did you have a, a lower stocking density that you gradually increased over time? Or, or, or where, how did that work? Yes, sir. When, when I, uh, thank you for your question, David. Uh, when two hertz with lower densities. Unfortunately, with that approach, we, we well, actually, you know, because we were in such a bad stage that we couldn't really get out of the drought. We, 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 it took us a few years to get out of, uh, on a drought mode into a more uh, benevolent uh, mode, you know? And then we, we, we did believe that by going from, let's say we start with 10 big pastures and then we moved to 55 pastures and three times uh, every four months we were grazing. So we did some improvement, but we did not have the diversity of plants that we wanted. And then we reached a plateau. We reached a plateau and then we started decaying because the third grazing, there was really not much to graze. So that's when uh, some of my my, my um, fellow ranchers start, the more progressive ranchers start going to laundress periods and more intensive grazing. And we've been doing that for probably five years when we went to from nine months, between nine months and 14 months of rest. And a, a more int- when I say intensive grazing, I'm talking about 50,000 pounds per acre. I mean, don't think that is, I'm going like 200. And, you know, there will, will be small places that we go and just want to have fun, you know, with a more 
intensive grazing. But that's all the um, that's all the the, the, the the density that we apply in our place. And uh, so we went from when we started the grazing, we only have like a three species of grasses, probably the grasses that were supporting a lot of overgrazing and overresting. And then we moved to 10 or 20, and now we have like 100 species of grasses, thanks to a more intensive grazing combined with a laundress period. But it was like a succession. You know? Now, the approach that I have is now different. You know, The approach that I recommend uh, people that we assist is to set aside a few parts of your of your ranch, like I don't know, in not many acres where you can spend a week and week and week and week here and there, but try to choose the best places on your ranch and then apply a more intensive grazing for a week and then in another spot a more intensive. You can even use include what we call inclusion zones, which is you pretty much are going to pen or corral your cattle at high densities, let's say 200, 500 thousand pounds per acre because when you do inclusion zones when you do very high densities like that exercise you don't even need water because the cattle are going to stay there for just a couple of hours and then see we need to be more experimental we need to try more i mean we don't really have to go to a place it's great to hold a place but we have to have our own labs in the ranches and we need to experiment more and more and that's why because we don't want to take much risk then let's experiment in small areas with, with, with not such a long, long time because we're making a mistake. And remember that this is a process where we need to get people on board and we need to get cows on board because cows are not used to higher densities. People are not used to that. And it's a process. I mean, we need to, but the, the importance is not to try to do it. We never recommend anyone to do it all, all the way through. It has to be small steps, but continuous small steps. Do not give up on the process, you know, because we're all gonna make mistakes. But that's that's our, that well, that's the evolution we made. But I would have done it different right now. I wouldn't really have done it from ten pastures to fifty-five pastures to let's say three hundred pastures and now hundred pastures. I would have done it like in small places on the best places and then start increasing those places, connecting those places and then move to the worst areas, which I did not do that. And it took me longer to accomplish what we have done. Kind of hard to explain in just a... Okay, now when 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 you talk about running multi-species, do you, do you run them consecutively? In other words, the, you got the cattle and the sheep and the donkeys all together or you come one after the other type situation? No, uh, horses, donkeys, and cattle are in the same the same herd, and they move. I mean, they bonded to each other. You know, they they miss each other. They were like walking when they were low. Oh, my God, what is that animal with long ears? But and then the sheep goes into a bigger pasture, but around the herd. So really, if you see, if you take a look at the sheep and a few goats that we have uh, with a shepherd, then they are more selective. Obviously, they're always pretty fat, but it's an area. I mean, we don't want the sheep to be always in the same area. So they move with the cows, but on a bigger area around the cows. So the cows are in a more intensive grazing and the sheep is in a more light grazing, but around the cows. So we're trying to prevent, but they are not with the cows, they are just around. 
You know, the dogs that were around with the cows, they really helped with the coyotes. Even though they meant not kill all the coyotes, but just marking their territory helps with the coyotes stay away from the whole area. Because these are like Agbash Cross uh, Pyrenees, and they're they're pretty mean to the coyotes. Hey, one, one, one more. Do, do you run purebred livestock, or or, or the composites, or, or what, what do you what are you doing there? Well, you know, when I when I grow up, I grow up with Herefords. Like probably a lot of us grew up with Herefords. I love Herefords. Um, my dad moved that into Charley, and then I went back to the ranch, and I started putting Herefords and Red Angus. And now I have a mix of everything, but leaning more towards that Hereford Red Angus. But I mean, we don't really choose based on color, more on on how how the cow is doing. I mean, we don't really care when we are calling. We don't care for the for the middle one, like the eighty percent or seventy percent of the cows. We don't care. I mean, they are doing okay. We do care for the bottom to call them, and we do care for the top to try to get some bulls out of the top cows. That answer your question, David? It does. Thank We're you good. kindly. Okay, I'll I'll add to it a little bit. Uh, your original question was about: Do we increase the uh, the numbers as you as you go on? Like, did it start with a small number and you increase them? Mm-hmm. Was that correct? That that was my question. Yeah, original one. Okay, so so one thing that I've talked. So Alejandro and I are both in extreme environments, but we're different extremes, right? He's got a very dry area with uh, a dormant season that is the grasses burn off. Okay, and I'm in a different environment where I've got a very short growing season. Uh, well, it might actually be a little longer than his, but then we get winter. So then we get covered in snow. So we've got two different extreme dormant seasons, short growing mm-hmm. seasons, uh, extreme dormant seasons. So one of the things that I tell people all the time, because they, they talk about that, well, how much improvement are you going to get from doing an advanced grazing system mm-hmm. of some kind? Um, I usually say there's a 50% increase in the first year. If you go from continuous grazing to an, an, you know, an advanced grazing system of some kind, um, you usually get some benefit, but it doesn't necessarily mean the number of animals. Okay, so when I say a 50% increase, mm-hmm. I might mean, how about the number of days, right? If, if I've got a growing season that's 120 days long, and let's say I've got a pasture that I can put 100 animals out on, whatever they are, it doesn't matter, just a generic pasture, a 50% increase would be 150 animals. But what if I took the same 100 animals and instead of 120 days, I got, you know, 180 days or 200 days out of it. Okay, so I get more days out of it, not necessarily, I'm not going to add, you know, increase my stock stocking rate. Uh, I'm just going to get more days out of it. So I, I don't know if that was clear enough. I, uh, I had a great story in mind when I started that, but did that make sense? <laughs> It does. It's just a different, different metric, I guess, you know, yeah. because it, it's, you know, you extend the, 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 the grazing season versus the, the number of head on, on that ground. And it, it, it's, it's all positive. Yeah. It's not necessarily the number of animals that you would increase, but it's, it's the number of animal days that you get more out of. And that's a safer bet. I've, there's been lots of schools of thought when in my, you know, when, when I've learned in the past from different people where they talk about how you can change your stocking rate with your carrying capacity. So, you know, if you've got a really good year, you put more animals out there, or if you have a drought year, you destock and you put fewer animals. I've learned that, you know what, if I just stock moderately all the time, 
on the good years, I'll graze longer. And then on the bad years when it's a drought, well, then I, I, I still can be out there for as long. I don't have to destock at all. Because also on those good years, I'll actually put more back, right? I'll make more deposits in that uh, ecological bank account and I'll leave more residue and I'll build my water capacity. I might even skip some paddocks and let them go to seed and let all that residue go back. And then when that drought year hits, well, my land's in better shape anyway. So I'm a, a big fan of being moderately stocked and I'd rather graze longer than have more cows. So that's a big mistake a lot of people make is they, they oh, the grass is doing good. Let's get more cows. Well, then when the bad year hits, you've got too many cows. So yeah, and I would like to add something there, Steve. For, for us, the priority is to lower the costs. I mean, how can we, and I just, just explained to that, you know, there's many ways to lower the costs by, by having a longer grazing season. By, uh, and that's the key, I mean, to have uh, these grasses to stay green longer. That's kind of the key because you have a, a, a green grass and that means that you're going to lower your inputs. So that's for me the priority. I mean, we know that eventually you will increase your numbers, but I think the priority should be just to lower your cost, and then and then the, the, your your ranch is going to tell you when to increase. I mean, you don't really have to guess just by observing. You say, well, I have more grass, and and you always it's always nice to have that escape valve. You know, like okay, what happened if I hit by a drought? Well, you know, like many of my friends, uh, fellow ranchers, doing this. They sometimes split the ranch in two. So half of the ranch is for, for uh, a leasing or stalkers, and the other half is for their poor herd. And that way they always have that escape valve when something happens and they just say, well, the lease is done, and then I need that grass for this year. I think that's a really good point. And I think that a big part of that is just knowing your profit margin, right? Because we see it in all sort, always in agriculture is, you know, oh, well, I get this much yield, so I must be making a profit. Oh, I have this many cows, so I must be making a profit. But if you don't know what your expenses are going into that, if you don't have a good idea of, of your a big picture of what your farm is doing financially, then there's no way to know if you're actually making a profit because you can have, you can have, you know, oh, well, I have 500 cows on 10 acres, but that's only for three days and then someone else has less but it's for a whole year and so really until you you really get a good handle on your numbers it's hard to say if if you're doing well or not or if there's been improvement for that matter next up etienne hey so i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about your sheep you partly answered my question already i was going to ask how you manage the sheep you talked a bit about how you graze them, but I was wondering if you could go a bit more in depth as to what you've seen them graze and what the results are and what your culling process is. Do you vaccinate and warm them or are you natural? What kind of sheep do you run? And a little, just a little bit more in depth in, into your sheep. Well, you know, <laughs> I have to be honest with you. I love eating lamb. And we had the sheep for many years just for our own consumption. When we bought the ranch, like 40-something years, taking care of themselves, we had a lot of predation issues. We never care about that. But now that we're kind of direct marketing some ground beef, and that ground beef comes with the beef and lamb, then I'm paying more attention to the sheep. 
So I cannot tell you exactly what they eat. I mean, they're, I think they're pretty selective at the cows. I mean, they're looking for the leaves and some uh, forbs and some weeds. And as I told you guys, they're, well, we have a shepherd. So the breed, what was the breed that was originally at the ranch? I think it has a lot of wool. I mean, uh, there were a wool chip. And then we start putting catadine and some more like hair chip. And we never have vaccinated the sheep or, uh, remember, I'm in, in a dry environment, so I don't really have issues with a lot of uh, parasites or something like that. And it's all about selection. We never vaccinated our cows or, or um, cows either. Uh, it's all about selection. I mean, we, we are strong believers on selection and nutrition. So as, as, as you improve your soil health and improve the uh, the quality of your grasses and the, you extend the green season, then you're going to have pretty good nutrition. If you combine that with a good calling, calling and selection process, then you can have a very nice combination for your animals to help you reduce your cost and keep, keep them more uh, healthy. That's great. Thanks. I don't need to add to that one because I'm just the backup shepherd. I don't know very much about sheep. <laughs> Etienne's our, our manager at Greener Pastures. And so Steve's the backup shepherd and I'm the fair weather shepherd. So <laughs> he's the one that does the most of the sheep. Um, next up, Phil, are you ready to go? Yes, I am. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, in your environment with all the livestock you're doing and how dry it is, how do you retain moisture and build water retention things for your livestock? Yeah, thank you, Phil. Actually, it wasn't really that way when we started, and still not that way in most of the ranches down there, because the soils are very compacted. And it's not like the soil is very compacted all the way down. I think nature, I think nature, I mean, nature is really smart. And nature knows that we're not doing a pretty good job. It just seals, you know, you just put all the seeds on a vault and it creates that hard pan on the top. And if you see those places, they have a very clear white top that it reflects the sun. Once you start putting more plants and more microbiology, it starts getting more darker. So the thing is to work with the what we call the microherd. Microherd in this particular case for the for the affected rainfall, which is how much you infiltrate, is the mycorrhizal fungi. So how you feed that microbiology is by the photosynthesis. So the longer your green season, the more you're going to be feeding that, that population on the ground. And that, those mycorrhizal fungi are going to create the glues that are going to create the aggregates that are going to create the space in between. Take, I mean, look at those like marbles. I mean, they're going to start increasing from small marbles to bigger marbles and they create spaces. So when it rains, you're going to, soaking that rain and because you know that microbiology uh depends on the on the roots of the of the grass and they need a living root then they are not going to be on, only holding or providing minerals to the plant they're going to be holding water when it's needed and even for example in sandy soils where the water just infiltrates very quickly the aggregates actually hold the water where the plants can use it so the, the, this big reservoir of water underground, but then in order for us to keep that water, 
first we need to infiltrate that water and then we need we need that microherd to hold that water in place so you're going to have those deposits of water in the soil thanks to the microbiology that the plant can use when it needs i don't know if that answered your question or not well, I didn't want to interrupt you because that was great and I didn't want to stop you on the roll, but I was actually thinking more like, how do you water your livestock? Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we use, I mean, remember, remember things are changing and I can tell you not for good because I was in Wyoming and I saw these uh, nice creeks running and springs and I have a map of the state of Chihuahua on the, as early as the 1850s. And Chihuahua was full of beavers, otters, springs, and creeks. So we lost that. And now it's so expensive to develop our water system. Now we have to rely on, on wells, on pipeline. We use a two-inch pipeline. But now, because we're moving from 500 to 1,000 cows, now we're, we're putting the main line all, all gravity on a two-inch pipe. So we could potentially even increase even more if we pressurize the line. And then we have troughs, troughs, and we are, because we are, so let's say that we have a drinker or trough or every eight paddocks, you know, and then we subdivide it. We, we don't have back fence to the water. But some of my friends are doing a combination of fixed water troughs and also portable water troughs. And then that's, that's when it's very important for you to make sure that you put the water line in a place where you can add more water troughs later. So we have seen increases by having the water trough for every four paddocks, so you don't have to create these corridors. Up to 20% more grasses grow when the water is close to the, to the cattle, and they don't have to walk through a corridor to get it like a chair uh, trough. So that's pretty much kind of like the water system we have. Then we connect all the wells, and it's very important when you design your water system and your fencing. Water is the most important thing, obviously, and fencing is kind of the easy part. To do it in a blank page. Like, because, you know, for example, my design was constrained because, oh, we did not want to touch that fence because my great-granddad built that fence. And don't constrain your design. Just put it, like, in a blank page. You don't even care about where your water sources are. You 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 build a water fence. Uh, you design the water fence the ideal water phase, and then you start connecting the water source to that water uh, system. Yeah, that's pretty much kind of defines what we have there. And then we connect all the wells. So all the wells are connected to the main line. Uh, and uh, uh, see, water is so important. I mean, you can do a very intensive grazing, grow a lot of grass, but you, have, you don't have the water to increase the herd. The flow rate to increase the herd you're done. I mean, you're going to lose all that grass because at least in my environment, if you don't graze certain grasses for a few years, they're going to oxidize. And that's what I'm pretty opposed to what at times, you know, these conservation districts do to seed a place and then leave that place for 10 years. Oh, well, you know, I think we're just um, leaving too much rest. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, Phil, um, you triggered a aha moment for me that I'd like to share, if that's okay. Um, I just got to go to uh, Polyface Farms, and uh, Joel Salatin was talking about water. 
and water systems. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to totally mess this up and I'm waiting for my wife to actually get finished the video so I can re-listen to it. Uh, but I, so I might get the details a little bit out, but he, Joel talked about a, a farm, a ranch years ago, uh, you know, many, many hundred years ago, the, the value of the land at the time was valued according to how deep you had to dig for water. So if you only had to dig four meters, the land was more valuable, right? Because you're hand digging well. So this makes a lot of sense, right? You don't want to dig too deep because water is, is so important for livestock. And so if, if you had to dig 50 feet for water, then the land was cheaper because nobody wanted that land. You didn't want to dig that deep. And he talked about this one piece of land that years ago you had to dig like five meters. Like I said, I'm going to get the numbers wrong here, but you'll get the idea behind it. And then, you know, 50 years later, the same piece of land you had to drill. Now we're a little bit more modern. We had to drill, say, 50 or 100 yards to get to water because the water table had dropped that much over that time period. Okay. And then nowadays, I think he said you had to go 250 feet or something like that to get to water. So the water table over, you know, 100 years has dropped drastically. And the way he described it is, if you've got a milkshake sitting on the table and you have one straw in it, it doesn't take, you know, it takes a long time to finish the milkshake. But if there's five people sitting there on the table and there's five straws in it, boy, you better suck pretty fast because the milkshake is going to be gone right away. Right. So it's kind of a, a competition to it. So the aha moment that I had and what he talked about, he said he, I, he has not, no, no problems with water wells, right? They're, they're a great way to get water, but he wants to leave his land more hydrated than when he got it and if we're sucking out of the aquifer and we're lowering that over the years our goal should be to accumulate water and to build water and he's talking surface water on our land so uh and that was an aha moment for me right i'm you know a lot of neighbors for me don't like the beaver they're always trying to get rid of the beater beaver and to me i want to hydrate my land more i want to create more riparian areas to, to hold on to that um, so i don't you know, in the back of my mind now is I don't want to drill wells. I want to create a hydrated landscape that we can pull from surface water to rehydrate everything. Then we're going to have a better water cycle. We're going to have a better, you know, uh, environment for biodiversity. If I can get those riparian areas built up and to hold water. Now I know not every environment can do that or has the ability of really sandy soil. Well, good luck trying to hold on to water, but just the, the aha moment I had was that milkshake sitting on the table and five straws into it. How many wells do we drill until we run out of water in the aquifers? Yeah, uh, great comment, Steve. And, you know, for example, uh, knowing what we know today and the capacities that we have been able to increase in our ranch, uh, because everybody told me when I started, you know, you cannot run more than 300 cows there. And now we know we can run a thousand cows there. Uh, we're not yet there yet, but then you start making the calculations like, okay, so how much how much water I need to run a thousand cows? So if I'm going to buy a ranch, you know, and it's kind of hard to buy a ranch because you keep putting more on top of what you already have. It's just incredible. I mean, the return on investment when you're already on the game is so small. It's such a great return than just thinking about buying a land but if i ever buy a land then i need to take a closer look that that land based on my experience have to have the water to at least equals 
testing and the capacity of my ranch or even more. And that, that means that I need to know how many gallons per, per minute that well can give us. And it has to have more than one well. Because, you know, the grass issue is one, but the water is, my God, you don't want to get into water issues. You always have to have plan B for water. That's one of the things that we found on our ranch is we won't run out of grass. Like we're, we're pretty good on not running out of grass. However, we have come very close to running out of water. or We'd have to come up with some solutions for how to get the cows some water. So, yeah, definitely. I think we're about to turn it over to financials a little bit with Graham Gilchrist up next. Make sure everything's on. Alejandro, thank you very much. We're talking today. You were talking about your sheep inventory and your camel inventory, and you talked a little about expenses, but could you take some time to walk through what has changed on your balance sheet and income statement? You've certainly talked about you've got the capacity for in your your grade, your range to handle your cow populations, but did you get to the point where you were had a, a sustainable increase in your females, whether it was sheep or, or cows? And then the related cash flow from that. And but you also talked about you had a change of expenses. And I assume you talked about going down. So over time, have you seen go beyond uh the inventory and forage capacity to a direct uh, change to your ability to pay your bills and and put more money back into your, your jeans? Yeah, thanks for your question, Raham. As they say, you know, uh Shepherds. Uh, drink brandy and ranchers or cattle ranchers drink beer. So, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a shepherd yet. So, I can talk. I, I can share with you the experience that I have with cows. Um, we have uh, when I joined the ranch, we were running 150 cows. Uh, we were feeding those cows on the dry uh, season, which was from let's say probably. Like five months. And then my, my, my dad is a banker and he, well, the first things he told me is you gotta really do like a, a, a managed by note. Like I want to know what are the, all the expenses. You're going to tell me what are, where all the expenses every month. So that really gave us a good idea of where all the money was going. And most, most of the expenses were uh, fuel, hay. Well, hay was the first one. I mean, all these supplements for the cows for those six months, they were eating all the profits pretty much. And we have to pay, we have to take money out of our packets to complete the year. And uh, the next one was fuel. And the third one, I think, was um, salaries. Um, so we were focusing first on the first one, you know, like how can I decrease the hay? And then through uh, proper selection and also proper management, we start extending the green season. We start shortening the, the time that we were uh, giving supplements. So it went from, from five to three, two, four, one, zero. And then through proper selection, then we start having the cattle that can survive only what the, obviously you're increasing, you're improving the grasses, you know, the, the quality of the grasses. It's not like, like they told me, you know, the tobolsa grass that you have is the finest wood that you can find. That's kind of comparable. So, but now it's not anymore. I mean, the tobolsa grass is so tasty and so great. I mean, even the cows prefer to eat tobolsa than grama grasses or side oats or uh, all that stuff. 
because instead of you having a lot of stems, oxidized grass, and very little leaves, when you start properly grazing, that grass is going to be more leafy. Uh, it will not tend to uh, put a seed and, uh, and very, very palatable. So right now, we were able to increase the herd to 500 cows, and the cost of running a cow is about 150 bucks. So we were really, really very focused on, on, um, on decreasing first the hay. And then regarding the fuel, then we start moving from uh, all these, right? because we don't have really electricity coming to the ranch. Uh, so everything was run on diesel. So what we did there was to start using solar systems uh, for pumping water. And uh, salaries, I think they pretty much remained the same. There was a little bit of increase on maintenance. But for us, it's been very, very important to be a low-cost producer. I think we're, we've been very, very focused on that. Sheep, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have, I'm just increasing my sheep numbers, but I'll tell you that um, later on. Are your sheep doing both wool and meat? No, only meat. Only meat, yes, sir. Because pretty much we don't really have like the original ones. It's just all cross bread. And it's, I, I actually this year put a couple of uh, dorper to get a little bit more meat. I'm very cautious when I, you know, put some genetics because most of the time you just go back. But, you know, we, we keep trying with um, once in a while. Most of the, most of our herd, cattle and donkeys and sheep are home raised. I mean, the, the rams and the bulls are home raised. And we, we love it. I mean, it's just kind of like all kind of colors, but very efficient. If I understand right, the wool that you, you uh, I assume you clip every year, so that, that just becomes a waste to you prior to lambing. You know, say that again. Excuse me. You're not shearing the, sh you're shearing the sheep every year. Oh, no, that, we're not. That, you're not? Okay. No, we're not. We're not. Okay. Do you have hair sheep then, Alejandro, or wool sheep? That's a, that's, that's, that's a crossbreed between the two. I think I already put like a three or four breads there. And, um, you know, and, and Steve, I think you got a very good question. When, even if I have straight Herefords, straight Angus, straight Dorpers, that's not any longer straight Angus or straight Herford. It's Lazamas, Hereford. I mean, the, the name of my ranch or Lazamas, Angus, because we dream when we started with this stuff, you know, about, oh, my God, I'm going to buy this bull, I'm going to buy this uh, ram, and it's going to solve my issues. Now we understand that that's the beginning of a journey of selection and calling uh, to fit the genetics to your management and to your environment of whatever stage you are at that point. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Graham, to add a little bit to your question, I think the economics is so important in any situation. And you know what Alejandro does or what I do or what you do is so unique to our context, to our farm, to our environment, right? To understand the numbers behind it was one of the biggest breakthroughs my farm ever had, right? I was a cattle rancher. I had some purebred Angus. I was doing some, you know, in my mind, some wonderful things. I was feeding really cheap. We had a, you know, a great calving rate. Our percentage of weaned animals was fantastic. We were bale grazing for like 60 cents per head per day or something at the time. Like we were doing everything right right? It was low cost. 
when I actually got down and did my numbers, the economics on my cow herd was losing money. And the economics on my custom grazing was making money. And it made no sense to me. Like that's just totally going against what I thought. But when I actually sit, sat down and did the numbers, the reason my cow herd was losing money was because the opportunity for custom grazing, I had to charge my cows the same rate that I could charge someone else at. And my cows were losing money because the highest cost to my cows was my grazing. And it was on my land, right? Like it, it didn't make sense to me. But when you actually run the numbers, when I switched uh, you know, to 100% custom grazing, I made more money because the opportunity was there. So, and, and that might not work the same in somebody else's environment, but in my environment, that's what it was. And that's why we went the direction we did. To understand the economics behind whatever profit center you're doing is you know, one of the biggest breakthroughs you'll ever have on your farm. So I appreciate you bringing up the, the, the topic of, of economics in any conversation, Graham. Thank you. Well, as long as you separate the two math, you, there's an accounting piece, which is cash flow. And at the end of the day, you, take, you need cash to do stuff. And that's a different system of books than an economic analysis where you've got depreciation, you've got non-cash expenses you can put opportunity cost in there that has nothing to do with cash flow. So if you're going to do it, you got to do it twice. Exactly. Exactly. You can, you can have a business that is economically viable, but you go broke because you can't cash flow it. Your finance right. is wrong. Or you can have a business that you can finance, but you're going to go broke because it's not economically viable. Right. You got to have them both work together. <laughs> I meant to say it the other way around. No, I said it the other way around, didn't I? One, your economics could work in one situation, your finances is, is failing, and then you could have it the opposite way around too. So both of them have to work together to make them work. Agreed. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you, Graham. Awesome. And that we're at 726. So I think we're going to start closing out comments right away. I do just want to make mention. So for you guys listening, Graham Gilchrist is, he is one of the people I speak to fairly regularly. He's really knowledgeable when it comes to carbon sequestration, that type of thing and farm finances. So if he wants to throw his information into the chat, feel free to do that, Graham, and people can contact you if they want to. And outside of that, if you guys could both, maybe we'll start with you, Alejandro, if you want to just give us some closing thoughts, maybe some encouragement for producers that are looking to get into the regenerative grazing sphere. Yeah. What, what's been on your mind? Yeah. I mean, definitely we see a lot of challenges right now because, you know, because of the reason that we have broken the water cycle. Remember, there's the small water cycle where we're supposed to create 40% of the water that we get by vegetation, by a green vegetation, and the other 60% is coming from the sea. So that 40% really concerns me, but on the other side, we need to do, and we're doing it, you know? I mean, I mean, it's gonna take some time, but faster nowadays, because we have a lot of technology where we can share a lot of, like today, you know, today, doing what we're doing today wouldn't really be possible to do like, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I actually credited a lot of these great uh, webinars and, and uh, YouTube videos for awakening, awakening of uh, all this regeneration. So I think the great thing is we know how to do it. We know how to transform places that 
before were really hard to believe that they could be green places and were titled like deserts. And I see a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement also on young people, even young ladies, not even related to the ranching community, but that they want to be there because we're bringing a lot of hope, not only for the profitability and fun of ranching, but also for wildlife conservationists, for people looking, uh, because I think we produce a great, great product. I mean, we produce a product that is nutritionally dense, excellent, and uh, and we can do it in a very healthy and uh, in sync with nature. So, and then we can solve a lot of the issues with the water cycle, which is the main issue now on the climate and you know all that stuff. So it's a it's a great solution. I mean, it's a great solution, and there's a lot of benefits to it. Like you know, you just touched the topic of these carbon credits and all that additional income that could be created, even though it's still a market that is being developed, but there's a lot of opportunities out there. It's just exciting to be on this journey. Excellent. Thank you, Alejandro. Closing thoughts for myself. Uh, it's very similar, the water cycle. 25 years ago, I heard Alan Savory speak about a broken water cycle. And I was shocked that I'd, I'd learned about uh, the water cycle in college, but nobody ever told me it was broken. And that was a, a key <laughs> point for me. It's, it was a changing point in my career when all of a sudden I realized that the water cycle is broken and we need to fix it. And, you know, since then I've learned that, you know, 2000 years ago, they knew that the, the water cycle was broken, but we still haven't learned. I've got a great quote from, from Plato, uh, to, you know, 2000 years ago, talking about how the water cycle was broken. I, I just think that's an amazing tool that we can use that we need to focus on. Like that's the number one nutrient we have in our system, right? Uh, more than 50% of every plant is made up of hydrogen and oxygen, right? It's a very important uh, element in our, in our system. And uh, I just think that we need to focus and spend more time on managing that nutrient. Now we're talking about extreme environments here and Alejandro is very dry and very hot. Um, I'm quite dry and very cold, but we've got the other extremes as well. Super wet. We still need to manage a water cycle in those super wet environments, right? We get too much water. We want to make sure it infiltrates and, and drains away. So we need those good root systems to, to get away. We don't want to have that flooding, you know, damaging our soil. So we need a good sod base and, a, you know, the, to build that soil armor to protect it so that when the, the land is super wet, that we're not damaging it with the animal impact. So there's all sorts of reasons why we need to manage the water cycle in every environment right? To make sure we, we build that soil armor to protect that, that whole system. So yeah, my takeaway or my, what, what I'd like you to take away from this maybe is that, you know, the, the extreme environments, one of the biggest tools we can manage is just, you know, fixing that water cycle, both sides. Great. Thanks guys. So we are about to begin after networking, networking, where I'd say the gloves come off, but it's more like the mics come off and everyone can open up your mic, open up your video, feel free to chat. Um, we will be throwing some stuff into chat for contact information. Alejandro, if you want to throw it in on, if people want to get a hold of you and Steve, if you want to do that for greener pastures, and then I'll be posting how you can look at some of our YouTube videos 
and please subscribe. We need subscribers on YouTube. We're hoping to one day be monetized. So we need subscribers for that. Um, so yeah, outside that open up, we're going to turn off the recording and feel free to discuss whatever comes to mind. <laughs>